We kick off with a special episode of the self-hosted program. Alex is out on assignment at All Things Open this week, but both Brent and Jeff are in studio because we're getting ready for Linux Fest. Welcome into the self-hosted show, guys. Well, thank you. Hello. Thank you for being here. Audience, you probably remember listener Jeff. He's helped us with lots of projects over the years, and Brent, you were just here like the last episode or something I know. like that. It's funny. Last episode, we said, oh, you haven't been here in like <laughs> six months. Here I am. And when Jeff and Brent are here, that means it's project time. It's on. And uh, it has been on like crazy. We have been knocking off some projects that have been on lists for a couple of years. And this week, I think the one that I'm most excited about is we have my water heater, which is both gas and electric. Both, both sides of it, and the water pump are now all on relays attached to an ESP device, which, of course, is communicating with Home Assistant, so I can now automate my water pump and my water heater. I've wanted that for so, so long, and Jeff came over. He brought, like, boxes of stuff, and I thought, well, he doesn't need to bring anything. I got a ton of stuff, but I think we ended up putting all your stuff in the wall. <laughs> Mainly because I know where it's at, you know, yeah. what I have and how it works. Did you, Chris, have a look at his trunk? It's oh, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like a radio shack went out of business and he pulled up and just opened up trunk, you know, give it all to me. <laughs> it's so precise. When you're operating in an RV, things are never as simple as they should be. So of course we crack this central panel open that has all these switches and it has status lights for tank fill and you can start the generators kind of like the central control panel of the RV. And this is where we want to, in line, install the relays so we can control the pumps and the water heaters. How hard could that be to find a negative? You know, there's this panel full of wires. I mean, 50, 60 different wires in there at least. Bundles. And, uh, Jeff, how hard was it to find uh, (laughs) ground? (laughs) Well, we assumed the one we had would work, and it didn't. Um, We tried the thermostat. And ended up turning on the furnace. Yeah, it uses negative for signaling. Yeah. And when yeah. you cut the negative, the, fur- the furnace turns on. Or just put a load on it. Yeah, it, it freaked out about that. that. And that was after we already had it all buttoned up and thinking, yeah, this is the right way to go. It's tested. It works. No. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. feels so confusing to me. Like, why is that the choice that they made? Surely that's not a standard, right? It's one less wire they had to run. That's exactly it. And, you know, they're running across the RV. I don't know. Yep. I, but... There is also a little LCD panel on there that shows you the run time of the generator. You know, that's how you kind of keep track of your generators, the hours it runs. And Jeff was looking at that. And I, we'd, we'd mentioned it at one point, but I think maybe we dismissed it for some reason or another. I don't remember. I was more worried that we'd turn something else on yeah. unintentionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, I had to run around and like physically disable my slides because we'd kept setting the panel down on the counter which would then push the buttons for the slides and the slides would start coming in while we're working like hold on i'll go unplug them so there was a little bit of you know we're working on a live system here uh but honestly once you found the the ground uh the rest was really simple it's esp home on these little devices standard little relay that you can get off of amazon we'll have some links in the show notes and then uh, home assistant discovers it and the relay shows up as a switch to Home Assistant. So I can just toggle that relay. And I'm toggling the water heater. I'm toggling the water pump on and off. I've wanted it for so long. Now, Jeff, I think you learned a few things during this project, right? Yeah, a few words of caution when dealing with relays and these ESP boards. Uh, we're using like a D1 Mini or a clone of it. It's all the same thing. You can use a Node MCU. 
just about any of those boards, make sure you look at the board you're using and find its pinout. And there are certain pins that you're not supposed to use relays on. When it gets power, it might hammer it and not actually close or open, just as there and vibrates. And that's something in the past that tripped me up for quite a while. But these little devices can have numerous relays. I I believe the D1 Mini was four or five. We're using three, and all three of them are just fine. They're five-volt relays, and they're all taking power through the D1 even. So we'll see how long that lasts, but it should be okay. We were thinking, like, we want to build this in a way that is repairable. So if a component fails, we can kind of just unplug the relay in the ESP Home and just plug the standard switch back in. And then things just go back to the way they were before we did anything. That, though, is less of my concern. Because what I feel like I have learned over the last few years of when I first started trying smart home automation and and all that was really available was like the Hughes products and the really expensive commercial products, I, I don't know if I've ever had a single one that doesn't eventually die on me. They die out, they burn out, and then you end up having this $300 piece of lighting equipment that is entirely proprietary. And what I'm kind of coming around to, especially with these relays and whatnot, is all of them are modular. The relay can be replaced. The ESP Home can be replaced. The power supply can be replaced. And they can just be swapped out with standard stuff that is documented everywhere. And I'm a lot more comfortable building that into the wall than I would be like a TP-Link smart switch or a Hughes light dimmer or something. I just would not ever want to build that into the wall. And then seal it. But with with something like an ESP, and especially since ESP Home is so easy to manage with Home Assistant, it's a different kind of um, – it's not reliability. What would you call that? Not worried about the obsolescence issue either. Yeah. Right? It's not going to like in five years – I'm not going to be able to log into the app to, to update the app or update the firmware or something. Now, I think it was like a year or two ago I was at Alex's place and he had me do something similar with Shelly's, throw a bunch of them in – behind switches and things like that. Why not use those? Because I know those are pretty well built and they're well tested and all that. The Shelleys, I believe, are all using 120 volt AC. So they're meant for residential wiring, right? I think they might have one or two that's DC, I think. Mm -hmm. It's definitely an option, right? I like them. In fact, some of them even have some features these don't have, like power monitoring built in and whatnot. I guess one downside... They throw up their own Wi-Fi AP, right? There, well, there's that. You can, I think you can flash them, but there, there's that. But the other thing is, is this these? I mean, a four pack of these is like you know nothing. It's <laughs> it's the pricing is such that you can bang out a whole bunch of them. Yeah, a, a three pack is sixteen ninety nine, and have spares on site too. Yeah, you, you can have, and so that's really that's really nice. And then there's a good community around the ESP Home stuff too. So I like that a lot, and I think the integration there is a little tighter with Home Assistant. And if you're thinking about something, I'm going to need a firmware update for 10 years or some five years or whatever. I think I prefer that route, the community open source route with the ESP Home stuff. But I think the Shelleys are good good devices. Would, do you have a strong preference yourself, Jeff? I haven't played with the Shelleys at all. And funny enough, Alex is actually the one to introduce me to ESP Home and help me through it. Because my thinking with these ESP boards was I need to get a binary and flash it with Pi flasher, like there's a you know ESP board flasher uh, for Linux and or for anything, and that was my first thinking. I couldn't find a binary anywhere. I'm looking everywhere, like where's the ES home ESP home binary? I, I just couldn't find it. And I'm I'm going through the documentation, realizing that everybody's compiling it, and I've had issues with that before. And eventually, he's like, "No, dummy, do it through Home Assistant." 
what do you mean? He's put the ad on on Home Assistant, plug the dang thing in, and follow the instructions. And, and eventually, it finally clicked in my dumb brain. And th- it is really that simple. You plug it into either your host laptop that you're on or the Home Assistant machine, which is a little bit easier. And you just follow the instructions. It, it'll write a full config that works with ESP Home standard. And then you can edit that YAML config to what you want to use it for. Yeah, you could tweak device name or add additional relays like we did with switch names. And then you can name the individual relays in the YAML. It's all really easy to read. It's the first time I'd ever done it, and it all made sense to me. So now you may both have different answers to this question, but I'm curious what you think it was the most challenging part of this project in particular. It's always the little things, right? Like uh, trying to figure out where to pull ground from. Uh, how to get them installed where they don't block the wiring or, you know, getting these screws in this one spot. Don't you feel like it's always the little things? Yeah, it's the addition of everything together, the small things together. You know, the ground issue we brought up and we tried running wire from one side of the wall to the other through the crevices. That didn't work. I mean, just all sorts of little stuff like that. There's also a bit of a tedium when building these. A lot of small solder joints. You know, we're working one ESP with three relays that's three five volts, three grounds, three data transfer, and then making all the connectors for for it to be compatible with the original switches as well. That's a separate thing. So I don't want everything screwed in the screw terminals because they're quite terrible. I wanted everything soldered, but I also want them to be easily disconnected. So we're using the same quick disconnects you'd find in anything automotive, including these RV switches. All that together... It's fun for me, so it's not really a hard thing, but it's a tedium. And then you have to decide ahead of time what your plan is. You know, I've never used more than one relay on these ESP boards. I wasn't certain it was possible. You see those relay boards with multiple relays on them, but they usually, or not, I don't know about usually, but the ones I've seen with, say, 10 relays on them, they they do it through uh, I2 squared. I've never touched that stuff or whatever whatever that protocol is called. I've never used that stuff before. I've never used that protocol this, you know, it's still learning for me too. So a little bit of extra research, of course, scope creep, you know, oh, well, we're, we're doing the one, we got to do the, the other one as well. And then what about the water pump, you know, yeah. we're adding, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. And, and that's always fun to learn. But well, in those, reality, it starts with this button broke, we should fix this button. Yeah. And then it goes to, well, if we're going to fix the button, we might as well hook it up to a relay. We might as well upgrade it. Yeah, and make it better. And then it's like, well, if we're going to hook up the electric side to a relay, we got to hook up the gas side. And if we're going to hook up the the heater, we might got to have the pump. And <laughs> yeah. It starts with, let's fix this button. <laughs> yeah, and literally the physical button is broken. That's something else we did, right? We we had to figure out how to pop those buttons out and, and or the switches out and repair yeah, those. There was a repair function we were doing too. Yeah, yeah. It, it's all just, it all kind of adds up, but it's fun. I mean... I look at it as I've tried to look at when things break or, you know, die and need replaced. I try to look at it as an opportunity to replace it and build it back better with something that is uh, open. You know, I'm, I'm big about building back better and open. <laughs> Leno.com slash SSH. Head on over there, get $100 in 60-day credit, support the show, and really try things out. With that $100, that's their vote of confidence. And now... Linode goes from strength to strength because they're now part of Akamai. All the tools we like, like the cloud manager that's beautifully built, the API that's well documented, got libraries for days, and the command line client, which I'm telling you, hot tip, put that in your Quake dropdown. All of a sudden, you're like a cloud lord. So nice. All that stuff's still there. They're investing in more, too, because it's combining with the power and global reach of Akamai. And you guys know, Akamai is the best of the best. They are the really, like, high-end network. And... 
They're investing in more cloud computing resources and tooling to give us more reliable and still that affordable service that we love that will scale for individuals or a business of any size. And now you get access to that global network of offerings. Like the data centers are going in more. They just spun up a few more. They're, they're launching a whole bunch this year. They're going to give us access to more resources and help us grow our business. You can serve your project, your customers, your family, whatever it might be. You've been thinking about it, or maybe it's time to go deploy a game server for the kids, or maybe it's time to go deploy a chat server for work. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. They got the pricing and the scalability. So try it out right now. Go see the power of Linode, now backed by Akamai. Go to linode.com slash SSH to learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help scale your applications from the cloud all the way out to the edge, like Brent's cabin hanging off a Starlink edge. You're going to be impressed. Yeah, that, I know. Linode.com slash SSH. Well, back on the show, and it's been forever since Paulus and I chatted. I don't know if you remember, Paulus, but I think it was still just the first year of Home Assistant. You and I had a little video uh, chat a while ago, so it's been way overdue. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, there is so much to get into this week, some of the stuff I'm most excited about this year, actually. But I wanted to start with something that caught our co-host Alex's attention, and that was the sort of immediate, abrupt news about Mazda going after a library, I think, if I have this right, a library dev, that um, uh, unfortunately resulted in also the integration for the Mazda Connected Services and Home Assistant having to get removed. And it's sort of just this heavy-handed, I feels like, strongman tactic that really has me thinking about ownership and what we have rights to. It's our own cars. And so, Paul, I know Home Assistant had to make some news on the blog. You made a blog post on October 13th. Can you kind of fill us in a little bit? Yeah, so what happened is that um, a, a person in our community um, who maintains a library to interact with Mazda, he got a DMCA takedown from Git, uh, or GitHub got a DMCA takedown claiming that he had violated copyright. I see, so uh, Mazda's based- lawyers went to GitHub. Yes. So, well, two things. So they went to GitHub and said his Python library violated copyright of both the iOS app and the Android app. And they also sent him a cease and desist letter saying he has to stop abruptly, like all his activities related to like integrating Mazda stuff. And he was also the maintainer of the Mazda integration in Home Assistant and the Mazda integration in Home Assistant used his library as well. I see. And so, you know, for him, like, this is just, you know, a, person in his spare time working on this like he obviously owns a Mazda car um so that's why he was invested in this and like building this and he was like yeah I'm <laughs> I'm not didn't sign up for this right I don't want so, this trouble yeah and so yeah he, he he came to us and we're like yeah let's just delete it because you know we've seen it in the past like you know this is this is a very blunt tactic like uh, you know I don't it's very uh I wish they wouldn't have just sent us an email right that we can like talk about things but the intention is clear, right? They don't want to be integrated in Home Assistant, and there are many ways to block users. Why do you suspect that would be? I, it just doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me because it seems like it just results in dissatisfied customers, and it's not. It's not like it's costing them anything, is it? It. I mean, it, it costs them in that they have a cloud service and sure. like they get more API calls, right? So, but at the the Mazda integration had in analytics two hundred twenty seven uh, users, which. Analytics is opt-in, right? With Home Assistant, and it's around one third opt-in. So let's say it's like seven hundred fifty people were talking to Mazda servers. Yeah, I doubt that that showed up, right? Like, 
That's and if it true. did, they need to build a better infrastructure. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> if they sell too many more cars, they're going to be in a problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I struggle. I struggle to understand it. Other than uh, it's it's like they just want to have their own service, maybe their own app, and they don't want anybody going anywhere else. Do you think that could be a component? It's just. I, I think it's about yeah controlling what users can do and controlling the experience. And yeah, I think I mean this is interesting because this kind of gets into, for example, why some manufacturers are not happy about matter it's about owning the user experience right like you open the mazda app and they can upsell you i don't know new tires for example <laughs> you open the home assistant app we're never going to sell mazda tires one question i have around there is you know this feels like a a bit of a dirty tactic as you alluded to if this worked so easily on this project do you think they'll just be encouraged to do it elsewhere and so how do we as you know open source software creators and just a huge community, uh, deal with that. Because it seems, I don't know, like yeah. a real problem. The I think the, the bigger thing here is that you, we shouldn't buy those products, right? Like, in the end, a company, one way or the other, can lock people out of their own data. And the best way to work around it is to make sure you buy products where that's not possible, right? So anything with an open standard, or anything that can talk locally, um, can just work like Zigbee, Z-Wave, or Matter device. They can never take away from you, right? There's just no cloud necessary. There's no ping back home necessary to set it up. It just works. You have also like non-open standards, like you know, you have those uh, Shelly relays. They open an access point, right? And locally, you connect to it, you set it up. There's also no cloud necessary to configure. And those companies can, you know, once you have that product, you can do whatever you want with it. The car is maybe a problem for uh, for the future, but you yeah. guys have made incredible progress this year on solving this problem for the voice assistance. And it's been the yes. year of voice, and we've been watching Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 come out and Chapter 3. And now in October, we've got Chapter 4, Wake the big Words, one. the big yes. one. I have to imagine this was what everybody was asking for from the very beginning. Yeah, so you know, we did chapter one in January, and you know, we started like we called it was like the we were reading the book backwards, right? So we started with just <laughs> intent recognition without even do, dealing with speech or wake words, just intent recognition because you kind of built everything on top of that. And since January, people are like, "Where's wake word? Like, how can this ever replace my Google if there's no wake word?" <laughs> yeah, and it's not that we didn't know; it's just that like, no, all these different pieces have to be in place. Like, it, a voice assistant is a very complicated stack, right? Like, it's all these different parts, and everything has to work well enough. Otherwise, the, the chain falls apart. Yeah, from connectivity to room uh, quality and audio quality. And so I, I'm really, really impressed with what is version one, or if you'll even call it that, seems to be. And can you kind of describe the stack? Because the way I break it down, Paulus, is we're, what we're really looking at now is Three incredible open source projects that are coming out of Nebukasa. Piper, we have we have the Open Whisper. Uh, well, actually, four if you consider the Wyoming protocol. And now we have Open WakeWord, right? So, in my world, I see these as three containers that I can run on my system that now give me the capability to do local text to voice and voice to text and and speech recognition. It's a pretty incredible stack. Yes, yeah, and this is actually how we've always envisioned it, right? Like, I mean, Home Assistant is about choice. And so we've been building it up um, to make sure that through the Wyoming protocol, which is really the, the, the piece that unlocks this all, which is an 
an open protocol for integrating voice assistant pieces into like a bigger voice assistant stack. And so, you know, the home assistant box itself might not be the most powerful and people are running open whisper on it, the speech to text, um, people are running Piper on it. Whisper is not so good on a Raspberry Pi. It takes too long to really transcribe. Uh, Piper is good enough because we cache all the outputs that it generates. So the first time it's slow, afterwards it's fast. But because of Wyoming, it doesn't have to run on Home Assistant, right? You have a bigger server, um, it can just run over there. Um, you're subscribed to Home Assistant Cloud, it can also run in the cloud. You don't even have to run it locally if you want to. And it really allows for choice. And I think what is more important for us is it allows for experimentation. So open source people are always tinkering with stuff, right? Like Home Assistant didn't just start, like it was because I was tinkering with something and it kind of grew into something. And the same with every other open source project. So allowing people to easily tinker with text-to-speech or speech-to-text or wake words and seeing how that fits into a whole voice assistant, that's now super easy. And that will hopefully result in even more and better projects that we can all leverage. Well, I definitely see the wheel spinning already because what I think is pretty fantastic here is with Wyoming, I can run components individually. So in my example, my home system runs off of a yellow, but I also have an Odroid that I run the more processor intensive stuff on and it just connects over Wyoming and it's wicked fast. But I actually got started by using the built-in Nebuchadnezzar service stuff just to experiment to see if it was worth playing with. And that's, you know, that took 10 seconds to set up <laughs> and it's really good. Uh, so that, I mean, a lot of people would be happy with just that. I think what's the privacy story there. So the, the privacy story there is that this, this kind of, the, there's two different types of clouds more or less, right? You have an IOT specific cloud where every data you upload is tied to your user account, tied to your devices and states and these kind of things. And then you have the more like, service-oriented cloud, like just pure AWS, pure Azure, uh, pure Google Cloud. And our voice APIs in the Nabucasa offers, they're not tied to a user. They are um, tied to like the authentication token and it's not connected to a user account. We don't store that data. Azure doesn't store that data. It's just giving you the text back. It doesn't go through Home Assistant Cloud. Like your Home Assistant instance is talking directly to Azure and it's not tied to your home or identity in any way. So it doesn't like, you're not going to see Facebook ads, right? right because you right. asked about like, yeah. whatever. So it's significantly better than compared to say using an Echo or the Google Home Assistant. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you look at Echo or Google, you could go into the history. You can actually see, you know, they will tell you all the things you've uh, told, told them and they will show it to you in context of your home, right? So it's like, oh yeah, they have made that link directly they that's that's the goal yeah they're not even hiding it anymore <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i remember when i first tried the echo you could even go back and i don't know if they still do this but you could play the clip <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so one of the things obviously that is really exciting about an open project like this is people will be able to set their own wake words um you come with a, a bunch of presets like uh i think the okay naboo is a good one just because that's probably not a very common phrase uh, hey, Jarvis is also kind of fun in there. Um, but, you know, pause. Everybody wants to make their own wake words. And uh, I did play around with the collab book that you guys link in the blog post. But, you know, when I crank it up, it doesn't really want to play along. What are sort of the future plans there, if any, 
to make it approachable for people to create their own wake words, maybe even through the Home Assistant UI one day or something like that? So the right now, it requires quite a lot of training. The, the notebook that we put out, like at the bottom, you can change some of the parameters. And the reason that it like it really creates a basic wake word. The wake, word, the wake words you create with that Colab notebook are using the same pipeline as uh, you know the open wake word pipeline. I'm not sure if we... I, I can explain how it works, where like it uses uh, a base model from Google. It uses Piper to generate a lot of different sentences based on different speakers. And then it is able to mix speakers to create new kind of like sounding voices. So we can generate like 20, 30,000 samples of saying the wake word that you want to use. And also you inject different types of background noise too. I saw it pulling down flax of different kind of noise environments. Yes, so we do noise environments and we also um, mutate the sound so that like close to the microphone, far away from the microphone, these kind of things. And then we fine-tune that model to detect you know, that wake word. And the last step is that we run it against a negative sample. So there's like podcast databases out there and you just basically play all that podcast to the model and say, this is not the wake word, this is not the wake word, this is not the wake word. <laughs> That's great. No way. And that's like, you know, you put 2,000 hours of podcasts against it, and it's actually like, you know, it really helps the model learn the wake word even better. And so the Colab notebook that we made available, we kind of limited all those steps just so that it fits within the free compute that Google yeah, offers. Right, which which is limited, and it almost made me want to go sign up and, and see if I could put it in a much more powerful machine because I wanted I just wanted to crank it. Yeah, but you can run all of this at home, right? Even on a desktop computer. To a degree, to a degree. I did give it a go. I, I, we got close, Paul. We got close to getting the whole Python environment working, but I don't think we got it at 100%. That's, that's the problem, right? Like setting up like these scientific environments, they're very particular about all the versioning. We've been looking into a Docker container, but then you need like GPU pass-through and these kind of things for training. And that's just, there needs to be a better way. But there is actually already one kind of shortcut that we can take that mm. Open Word supports, but that Home Assistant doesn't support. And it's called, actually, I'm not sure how it's called, but it's fine-tuning with voice samples recorded by the voice satellite who is going to feed audio into the model. So by you talking to your microphone that is the one in your uh, RV, for example, it will learn about the room and basically you say it three times or four times and the model can get really tailored to your voice. <laughs> That's your so microphone. neat. Right. Like some real world training right then and there. Yeah. Oh, and that, cool. that part we're going to bring to Home Assistant, right? So that is like a small step, which should help with like the training. 45homelab.com. It's here. It's big. It's strong. And it's fast. The 45 Home Lab, that's a new division from 45 Drives that takes their enterprise design philosophy and brings it to a scale that works for us home labbers. And the HL15 has launched. It is available for purchase right now. It comes in different configurations. You can get just the chassis. You can add the back plane, add a PSU, or get the fully built unit ready to go. I mean, the early response from the self-hosted community was strong. We gave them a lot of feedback, way more than they expected, they said. And they've really built a solution based on that feedback. And it's powered by open source. It's running Rocky Linux. It's an open design. So you get freedom and control over the system. All of the HL15 units are using the 45 Drive's well-known direct wired approach, which means you open up the lanes directly to the motherboard, providing high performance for that home lab. It's a screamer. 
And they've also got an applications hub where they've done some hand-picked applications so you can get up and running. they got a couple of examples I love to see over there like Home Assistant and NextCloud and Plex. There's also a community forum that's popping off and people are getting engaged over there to help support each other that are picking these up. And they'll have more information soon over at 45homelab.com. But it's there now. And it looks so good. With the different options too, it really fits your different price points. You know, if you just want the fully built service, that's probably the way I would go. That's great. But if you just want to get a chassis and a backplane, you can do that. Or just the chassis, the backplane, and the PSU, you can mix and match. It's so beautiful. And it's assembled in North America, built with steel and the real screws, not rivets. You can actually get access to this thing, modify and take it apart to your heart's desire. It looks like they nailed it. Go check it out and order one if you're ready at 45homelab.com. And if you get one, I'm jelly. I, I, I feel like they ought to send the pod a review unit. <laughs> I really want one. Can you tell? (laughs) All right. Congratulations to the team over at 45 Drives and go check it out at 45homelab.com. It sounded like you're both very happy with some of the results, but it sounded like there was also some areas you already know you want to approve upon in the pipeline or maybe in the recognition. Yeah. What, what, you know, we really like open wake words, but it's based on this model by Google. And this is actually really necessary because Speech-to-text is hard. And to create a proper speech-to-text model, you need to basically have a lot of input data. You need like Google scale of data, right? So the fact that Google put this model out open source is great because they have traded on whatever input they have access to, which is a lot. However, Google's model doesn't run on the ESP32, and that's why we have to run it inside Home Assistant or you know, with Wyoming on another server but it means for the user experience, if they add like multiple voice satellites, I think the limit is five right now for a Raspberry Pi 4, you're going to max out whatever your Raspberry Pi 4 can do, right? So we really would love for the wake word detection and some of the audio cleanup all to happen on the ESP32, mm. where it doesn't, think, that means that you can just scale up. Like if you have like, I don't know, you want one in every bedroom, bathroom, living room, kitchen, like you might end up with like eight voice satellites and it shouldn't impact how Home Assistant runs. Yes, that would be really nice because I'm going to be that guy. I am. <laughs> I'm going to have them outside. I'm going to have them everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the, the cool thing is that right now with presence sensors, you could disable wake word listening if you're not in that room to make sure that nobody is, uh, it doesn't overload the system. That's a great idea. Yes. Okay. That'll be that'll be my little hack that I'll use until we get that sorted out. Um, I kind of also though do like the satellite streaming model. I I see what you're saying, and the advantages of local processing do sound really good. But the benefits of the streaming model that it is that we have now is that means the satellite requirement is basically nothing. And yeah, that gives me a lot of options in terms of like building little custom rigs. I don't know if that's really going to happen but it feels like i have a lot more options when the satellite's just kind of a dumb stream oh for sure i mean you, you i don't know if you saw the video of paul who made that robot from star wars yeah. that is now a voice assistant like that wouldn't have been possible if he also besides having to learn how to 3d print and servo move robots around also had to build a voice assistant into that right <laughs> so yeah it's it really in that part i agree it's it, it, the the challenge there is that not every microphone is the same. So Espressive has made some uh, the ESP32 S3 box available, which is two microphones, and they made algorithms available to do like 
uh, blind source separation, acoustic echo cancellation, a, bo- a bunch of these cleanup uh, things. And, and that, that is happening might- on device, right? Yes, that would happen on device. Yeah, yeah, that does look like a. That seems like that's the box I want to really go in on. I think when it becomes generally available. Yeah. So that that's the, that's their next target. I would say also right, like is to get that box. Eventually, I wanna we want to build our own hardware. We want to because that box doesn't look nice, mm-hmm. right? It looks still too geeky, like. Yeah. You know, you we think about the home approval factor, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, you want to put this in your living room, and like right now, I just have a cord dangling with an atom ego at the end of the cord <laughs> yeah. in my living room. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> and that you know, it needs to look nice. It needs to fit in with the decor and these kind of things. So yeah. we want to build some hardware that really blends in, but I think we want to have on-device wakeboard ready for that. the The bigger challenge will be. Can we get custom wake words running on that device? Yeah, that would be pretty great. Um, okay, so here's my last kind of year of voice question. As I'm looking at the broader open source ecosystem, of course, I'm a longtime Linux desktop user. I'm very, very excited by the projects that have come out of the year of voice because they are not necessarily dependent on Home Assistant. They can just run on Linux, and I think there's a lot yeah. of possibilities there. Have have you seen any any other projects looking at this work at using some of this work in some of their projects? Yeah, especially around Piper. Piper has seen a lot of uptick um, because Piper is a neural network. Yet we optimize it to run on a Raspberry Pi four, which means that if you run it on a Linux desktop with like an Intel processor, it's going to run fast. Mm-hmm. And so. There was uh, a bunch of screen readers that have adopted Piper now so that they, because, you know, if you're on a screen reader and you want to quickly skip through every button, right? You're like pressing, read the next part, read the next part, like, you know, for for blind people to navigate. And Piper can just keep up, right? Like Piper is really useful there. We also see that there was this, the, the National University of Uzbekistan. No, was it Kazakhstan? Uh, I think it was Kazakhstan. They are using Piper to uh, in their scientific research because there are not a lot of models trained for their language, and they were able to train their own models oh, themselves fantastic. because it's all open. Right. Yeah. Right. And at some point, there was also we lost track of that person, but he was using Piper to um, get books. I think in the Philippines, like turned into audio books, so that like more he could easily distribute like to rural areas like more uh, books <laughs> so you know it's once you start doing it i think somebody made a unity plugin as well so that your npcs can all have like unique voices you know it, it can be used for everything really i'm excited to maybe see even somebody take a stab at some sort of linux desktop assistant or something yeah i mean it should be fairly easy because you can use all our different parts it's just a you know, the sentence processing you would have to do for Linux specific. Okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit because by around the time, it'll be late this week, Friday morning-ish, this episode's coming out, uh, we'll probably have some news about a security audit that was conducted at Home Assistant. Do you have any details there you can share with us at this point? So the, the, the blog post is not out as we record this. We are still planning to, but because it might be delayed, I cannot like give all the details. But we had, uh, we've hired a company to do a security audit of Home Assistant, and they were focusing on our authentication stack, our web stack. Um, at the same time, or like slightly after that, um, another security team did an audit of Home Assistant. Now, they also found both both parties 
found things, uh, no authentication bypasses. So that's really good. Mainly ways to uh, trick users. The the reason we went for a paid audit, because like over the years we've been, you know, sometimes get security issues reported. We get people auditing Home Assistant and sometimes, you know, like, but you don't know if they've covered everything. So we did a paid audit to make sure that we define the scope, but we know that they go through all the different parts of our authentication layer to make sure that it, it it's uh, audited and it, it's secure. Are they looking at the Nabucasa services too in that audit? Yes. So they looked at the remote uh, end-to-end encrypted remote connection as well. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Because that was like the, in a way we wanted to have the whole stack of like, how do people access Home Assistant um, from both Home Assistant Cloud, but also if you just expose a port on your router, both stacks are fully audited to the authentication core. And um, sounds like uh, there was a couple of things, but nothing too major. And most of that stuff's already been rolling out patch-wise. Yes, yes. But we are, um, a bunch of the stuff was done this summer. The audit was done this summer and the fixes have been rolling out in the last couple of months. So if you've been keeping up to date, you should be good to go. If you've not been keeping up to date, you could get tricked, I guess, right? Um, but it's not like they can just like go to Shodan, find Home Assistant instances and like hack, 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 hack. <laughs> good. Well, that's good. <laughs> now, are you planning to publish some aspects of the report, all of the report or anything like that at some point? Yeah, so we're doing a whole, every, every we have requested CVEs. Everything is on our uh, uh, security tab on the Home Assistant core repository, which is basically our, this is the place now where we track all the security issues. We're also going to, uh, we've updated our security page where we just got to publish a timeline and we want to make it more normal for our community that, hey, security issues happen. We're public about it. We're open about it. And here you can find them and just have this be more a uh, day-to-day business. Like, oh, look, there's a new security issue. We fixed it. Uh, please update your stuff. Uh, because, you know, in, if you are like an enterprise or a business and you buy software and sometimes you get the security updates, you just update and you kind of go with your day users are just not used to that process as much that their software has leaks and these kind of things. So we kind of have to educate them in that sense of like, hey, security issues happen everywhere and it's okay. We solve them. And as long as we, you know, are on top of it, we're probably in a good spot. Yeah. It's it's almost impossible, right? I mean, humans make the software. It's a very, very, very sophisticated piece of software. I just I like the peace of mind of knowing that you guys are on top of it and you're doing the audit thing. Uh, Paul, you know, I, I got to admit, at the beginning of the year, when I think I was watching the stream when you announced the year of voice, I thought, ah, that's a long shot. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, we'll see what we get. Uh, and now here we are, and it's not even the end of the year. And yeah. I am well, thrilled. Yes. I, I think that what really help is it like you know the, the things that have come out some of it was kind of already in the pipeline like uh piper like mike was working on it already but things like whisper we didn't know that whisper that open like whisper came out of open ai right and open ai created whisper because there was not enough text for them to train chat gpt on so they're like we need more text like let's start transcribing audio and train on that and then they made it open source because i don't know exactly why but it's great for us and so open wake word as well, right? Like um, David found that model and all of a sudden realized it with Piper and all these pieces <laughs> falling into place. Yeah. And, you know, the Atom Echo, it's not amazing, but 
it's a $13 little piece of hardware I can use to play around with this. That's that's pretty great. Yeah, right now it's sold out everywhere, but by the end of <laughs> October, there should be like 3,000 more, uh, M5 Stack told us, and then they're going to make a bunch more. Uh, we're also going to look, talk to them, because right now you can buy these $13 devices, and then you have to go to our website, and we have this installer, browser-based installer for ESP devices. It installs the software on uh, on the device, but we're actually talking to M5 Stack, like, hey, can we just put the voice assistant firmware on it? Because nobody else uses these devices, really, right? Like, this is mainly used for Home Assistant. So let's get it working out of the box. Yeah. And so they are looking into that. <laughs> That'd be so great. Uh, yeah, in, in the RV, when once, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to use the motion detection, the presence detection for this trick. I'm not kidding. I'm going to put them in my storage base. I'm going to have these little things everywhere outside in the yard so I can control the lights outside. So let's get it easy because <laughs> I'm going to be doing a lot of these. Nice. Well, Paulus, just would you please pass our congratulations on to the team I will. and our gratitude. I think this thing is going to be uh, a, a real fire when people really start to figure it out and start playing with it and uh, start building their own devices. I think it's just going to be a massive hit and uh, just really excited to see where it goes now that you know we're at Chapter 4. So. Keep us posted and uh, come back in the near future and uh, give us an update on it, would you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll do. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 100 devices. It's a great way to support the show. And you can keep it. It's not a limited time trial. You can really use it for up to 100 devices. So what is it? Well, Tailscale is a zero-config VPN that you can get up and running on your devices in minutes and it's protected by WireGuard. That's right, the noise protocol to quickly build out a mesh network. Doesn't matter if it's Linux, Windows, a mobile device, a VPS, a VM. A lot of applications have plugins now like VS Code, and you can plug it into your container. Home Assistant has an add-on for it. I mean, it's just everywhere now. It also has this great feature called subnet routing. So if there's a device you can't run TailScale on, you can turn on a subnet router, and then you can get to devices on that subnet. I do this for, like, my solar gear. I do this for my electrical monitoring stuff, anything that's like an appliance, like a router that maybe I can't install software on anymore, mm, subnet routing takes care of that. And because it's built on WireGuard, you just have that sort of peace of mind, knowing that you're using the best VPN encryption in the business. And if you're behind double NAT crap like I am, I can attest, TailScale works like a champ. And then, guys, you'll start building it out, and you'll realize there's just better ways to do things on TailScale now. And now with, like, the Apple TV app as well, you can have totally private media streaming all over an encrypted VPN, flat network, with IPs you know, with names you can resolve, and then you can use some of the great tooling like Tailscale Send. It's like AirDrop, but for all your machines on Tailscale. Or Tailscale SSH, another great one. Then you can just log in with your Tailscale credentials right as the machine comes up. That's so handy. There's a lot more, including the new Mulvad partnership. So go check it out and support the show by going to tailscale.com slash, you know it, self-hosted. That's tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Last episode, I asked for some feedback on a bunch of NextCloud things, which we'll get to, but first, Ben wrote in. He says, the one thing keeping me from deleting my Plex container was the fantastic Plex amp for my music, as none of the Jellyfin alternatives I tried were anywhere near as good. Recently, however, I discovered the brilliant Symphonium Android app. You can use the Jellyfin music library as the back end, and it's incredibly customizable. Well, worth a look. Cheers, and keep up the good work. Hmm, it does look like a really good app, actually. Put a link to this in the show notes, boys, because this is uh, this is one of the number one things we hear about the Plex switch. Uh, I, I'd love to switch to Jellyfin, but I'm sticking with Plex because of Plexamp. 
So Symphonium, and you can find it in the Play Store, it looks like. Boom. Link in the show notes for those of you listening. Uh, thank you, Ben, for that information. I, I, if I've heard of that before, I had completely forgot about it. So appreciate that. And speaking of feedback, we got a bunch of great boosts this week. We're going to try to answer a bigger batch because there's been a lot of good questions. VT52 is our baller this week with 110,621 sats. Oh, impressive. And he's got two interesting devices to share with the class. And he says they're attractive and hackable. All right. You're on the right show for that. One is the uh, Zima board, Z-I-M-A board. Around 120 to $200. It has two to four Celerons in there. It can go up to eight gigs of RAM, 32 gigabyte eMMC, six watt TDP, two SATA connectors, two gigabit Ethernet, two USB 3, a PCIe 2.0 slot. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Four PCIe 2.0 slots. They're just 1X. It's got a mini display port and QuickSync. He also mentions it's passively cooled. And then the other one, and I have seen this one before, is the Zima Blade, uh, which is bare bones at $64. Same specs as above, but uh, only one SO DIMM and only one gigabit Ethernet, only one, you know, cup, fewer ports and stuff like that. It's ZimaBoard.com. I'm going to put a link to that in the notes, too. It seems like there are so many options these days for these boards. Like if, if I, uh, they mostly get given to me, which is a quite a wonderful position to be in. So thank you, everyone, for that. But if I had to choose one, I don't even, like, how do you choose? There's so many. I've seen this one mentioned before on the show because it's like you look at it, it looks like it's designed to go in a car or or a, or a van. It's got like it's it looks like a ECU almost for a car, only you know, way more expensive. Uh, and I'm curious to know how often they update this because I have been looking at this with a curious eye since their Kickstarter about 302 years ago. And uh, uh, the question is, is like, is it a one-time run or they keep revving it? If you know, uh, please boost in. But VT wanted to continue talking about auth. He says, I've searched, but I've only find internet arguments instead of solid advice. I don't know if I'm missing something. It seems to be like a really fragmented space. There's a service that supports LDAP. This one is HTTP basic. The other one might be OIDC. It's all kind of just weird to me. Each is a snowflake requiring special config. Is this my life now? <laughs> I'm usually currently using Candom. Uh, OAuth 2 proxy and traffic. Uh, he says if we convert the boost amount, we get hex, which comes out as 16D8D if my math is right. But I I don't know what it means. Uh, LDAP ultimately is the mother authentication backend. All things collapse to LDAP. Marquis comes in with 60,770 sats. Thank you. Using Podverse. First time booster here. Your show is everything I've been looking for, and I love it. Here's some sats to you on the topic of small home servers. I bought myself a Zima board, <laughs> and it's amazing. It has an X64 Intel with two RJ45 PCI and PCIe slots and two SATA 3 ports, all for 120 bucks. The top version has 16 gigs of RAM, if I remember right. That's all for now. Thanks for the show. You're the best. Are they coordinating out there? How about some real-time follow-up there? Thank you, Marquis. That's nice, and thank you for the boost. Self-hosting his life comes in with 50,000 and one sets. It's keeping that boost train rolling. Hey, guys, how about a deeper look at NVR software? I know you covered it before, but a lot has changed. I finally got fed up with Blue Iris, and I decided to give Frigate a go, and I haven't looked back. Would love to hear an updated take from the two of you. Well, Jeff has been working with Frigate, and you've gone with the CPU for a while, and you just recently put, like, one of those corals in there to get accelerated recognition. Sounds like you're liking it with some caveats. With some caveats, it seems plenty fast, and there's one big caveat, the hardware. 
It's an Intel Atom. It's a Baytrail Intel Atom. And it's got a whopping four gigs of RAM. So that's going to be a bottleneck. For it's going to be a big bottleneck. Uh, it did fine, actually, to recognize people. The inference time was about 1,200 milliseconds if people have used Frigate. It's really slow. But it seemed real stable. It seemed to find people every day. I just had to look the next day to see, you know, people, right? <laughs> Which is okay. It not, not quite what you're looking for. Right. <laughs> so I did put the TPU in there. And... The inference time was way faster, about 10 to 12 milliseconds. And it seemed to work really, really well. But ever since then, it just hasn't been stable. I've got to reboot it every other day to make it uh, do the detection again. And that's my fault. I guarantee it's my fault. I'm running the stupid thing on Arch. That's my fault. But, hey, it's it's just to play with it. I am also fed up with the various NVR solutions. And so far, Frigate is my favorite on Linux. So... I'll re-ramp that onto something better, something more stable, and uh, give it another go. But for now, I'm loving it, and the TPUs are dirt cheap, and they work really well. We were looking, and I do see success stories, too, of folks using Wise Cams with Wise Bridge into Frigate. So I'm giving it a contemplation. I have Shinobi that I turn on from time to time, kind of when I'm like AFK, AFRV. And um, I think maybe Frigate would be a better solution for that. So uh, self-hosting is life. Let us know if you keep playing with it, and I'm going to keep uh, following Jeff's progress. Bronzenwing comes in with 50,000 sots using Fountain. Uh, and uh, they're going to switch to Albi and Castomatic. Nice. That's a great setup. Uh, they're passing on some sats. I want to say thanks for turning them on to Tailscale. I recently set it up with PFSense and HA Proxy with the VPN on-demand feature. It has... I have it advertise my local subnet and then advertise my local virtual IP for my internal reverse proxy and my local services domain. Now when I leave the house, it's like I never left. I can access my local services with their fully qualified domain names, but they aren't exposed to the internet. It's magic. It's just pure magic. Well done. Well done. Rever- so they have PFSense with HA proxy and the VPN on-demand feature, and they have it advertise their local subnet and then advertise their local virtual IP to their internal reverse proxy and their local services domain. That's that's a slick setup. That is a slick setup. Very impressed. Thank you for the boost. Darylin comes in. Darylin comes in with 10,000 sats using Podverse. Okay, so Plex. I'm responsible for the infra of about a million-plus user app, and uh, I'm also a self-hoster. They write, it doesn't matter if it's a professional or a hobby. My main takeaway after 20 years in the area, just stick to plain open source. I keep my fingers off the closed source or pseudo open source software. Mid to long term, it always hurts to use it. Long live Jellyfin and all the others. I uh, redid the math on that number there, Chris. Oh, on my hex? Uh, No, on this one with many, many zeros here. Oh, I think yeah? that's actually 100 million users. Oh, that's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of zeros. Well, it says plus. So what app could that, that be? What app? That's it reduces the list somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's some great feedback, and it echoes, I think, our sentiments as well. It's it's definitely true, uh, and it kind of my philosophy for why I'm using the ESP hardware with relays. I, you know, you can get off Amazon and ESP Home. It's sort of it's just not, maybe it's not quite as polished as the commercial solution. It requires a little bit more of Jeff's work, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's going to last forever and it's super replaceable. Well, and I feel like, you know, you buried this thing in your wall 
hopefully you're allowed to forget about it in the sense yeah. that it's there for many, many years. It just keeps working. Works but like hardware. Let's say seven years from now, it uh, just kind of gives out. Well, I think there would be enough resources out there for you to even solve the problem, yeah. even if you know ESPs are ho- probably long gone by then. But relays are relays. Uh huh. Exactly. And, right. Yeah, yep. so and like you just, just need to trigger that relay. Yeah. Yeah. Gene Bean comes in with a row of ducks. Brent, answering your question from last week, I'm using the Nextcloud Snap today, but I want to get away from it. I'm considering trying the Nextcloud Pi after talking to a community member about it, but I'm still undecided. And I'm interested in what others have to say. That's a tough question because, and I want to loop it in with Andre 2K. I think they're related. He sent in 6,666 sets. So thank you, Gene. And here, Andre's kind of along your same kind of uh, line of thinking. He says, I'm using Nextcloud from Linux Server IO. I had to migrate from MariahDB to Postgres because of newer versions not working out about a year ago. I've been thinking about switching to the all-in-one Docker to get hardware support for Recognize. But I didn't like the setup of the container since it was so different from other containers. And so this is a question I think a lot of people that are dipping their toe into Nextcloud, maybe taking their Nextcloud setup to the from the I want to test it to the actually want to use it stage. Jeff's been fighting with his Nextcloud setup. He's got kind of like a, a basic container setup, right? I think you're using. Are you using the Linux server I/O image? No, I don't believe so. But you are on uh, the old MariaDB. Yes. And um, the question you've been having recently, is it worth tearing down that DB, moving to the new stuff and going with just a straight up container or is it worth doing the all in one right? and having it kind of manage all that stuff? Right. Yeah. Getting help setting it up, you know, the way it is now with the reverse proxy. Uh, it's above my head. You know, I don't fully understand it and I need to fully understand this. And if I don't fully understand it, it needs to manage itself. So... The all-in-one kind of seems like a good deal, but not too sure. I'm in the same boat. I think it kind of depends on um, how solid their implementation is of all of it. Uh, Like I was saying before, off-air, I kind of look at it from a repairability standpoint. And the simpler the setup is, the easier it is to repair once you do understand it. And it's kind of like a new car that's totally sealed up that you can't really repair and do work on versus an older car that the engine bay has tons of room and you know what everything does. And you can actually trace one thing to another thing and go, oh, that's probably this and fix it. If you just go simple and stand up a database container and a Nextcloud container and then put Nginx in front of that to do reverse proxy, you could use traffic if you want, but just keep it really simple. You will be able to open the configs in all three of those cases and understand what they're doing, but you'll never understand what the all-in-one setup is doing. So I think there's that consideration. Now, if it doesn't break and it doesn't really have any other downsides, maybe that's fine, right? I mean, Volvo tells me that my uh, four-wheel drive system never needs maintenance. But then, of course, I got 100,000 miles into it. It turns out, oh, we were wrong. It actually does have a fundamental problem, and you have to fix that. And to fix that, you have to take the whole thing apart. But, of course, it was never designed to be taken apart. And so now I just have something that's kind of a time bomb, possibly. And I don't like that. It's sort of the same implication you have with those other whole home server out of a box systems. I think the real pro- approach is, is simplicity. Now, Eric sent in a row of ducks to let us know that he has been very happy using Nix to set up Nextcloud and Postgres. And he also has a flake that does it. And the nice thing there is that's a whole other level of one place to read it and you understand what it does. Uh, after the show, I'll show you my Nextcloud Nginx config in Nix, and you'll read that and go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that's doing. And that kind of, to me, is like how you make it approachable to repair. 
So I don't know if I like the pie image and I don't know if I like the all-in-one as much, but I'm open to the ideas. But traditionally, my experience has always been when I use one of these types of all-in-one solutions, I inevitably, if I put it, want to put it in production seriously, end up tearing all that down and just going building the essential system. I, I feel like, though, uh, that some of these projects are trying to aim at you know, different types of users. Yeah. Because that advice is super sound for someone who at least wants to get their feet wet in those technologies, which I think is likely most of us here listening to this. Um, but just reading the Pi documentation, for instance, it's clear that they're trying to build something that is kind of literally all-in-one. Like it has yeah. backups in there and has everything. And I know the all-in-one container is attempting to do that, but I think it also reaches for a different audience. And so it's... Are you? Uh, it might be similar to me in the sense that you know, five years ago, I installed the Snap because it was as much as I could bear back then. Right. But as you grow, you move into new solutions. Yeah. So it's a tricky problem. Yeah, and I think Jeff and probably a lot of the listeners that boosted in are kind of in this spot where you're kind of deciding, do I want to go all in and learn it this way? Do I want to go all in and learn it this way? And it's so you're really kind of, you're almost looking at, do you want an iPhone? Do you want an Android? Do you want a Mercedes? Do you do you want an old Toyota? Like you're you're kind of making a similar type of decision. And Ultimately, I think like maybe you're actually an old Toyota guy because you like, you know, these old 80s Toyotas are super repairable. But, you know, the new ones are really sweet and they got that auto driving feature and they're half hybrid. And that's really and that 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 kind of draws you in and you get into it a couple of years. and You're like, oh, crap, I can't do anything with this. I don't know. It could be a bad analogy, but I think that's kind of where I think uh, Gene Bean and Andre are kind of sliding. I don't know about Jeff, but perhaps, too. Uh, Megastrike came in with 5,011 sats and, and one, I think this is our last next cloud, maybe, um, but was asking about using it on a VPS to host. And if we don't use it on a VPS, do we use it on systems that have ECC memory? They want to get it on their LAN, but they want to do it right the first time. Now, take note of this one, Jeff. They said in the past they did run the NextCloud all-in-one setup, but they say it was slow to release and they had one breaking update, but it was pretty bad. Well, every update breaks for me, so hmm. ah. yeah, still one to consider. Mega Strike, thank you for the boost. No, um, I don't follow very carefully all the ECC stuff. I just load it on the system. And I don't really think about the RAM. I mean, I do prefer it on server-grade hardware in general, and I would totally take ACC if I could, but it's not a hard requirement. Not at all. Not even like a little bit, but not a bad thing to think of if you can afford it. It feels to me like part of the success for pieces of software like Nextcloud and Home Assistant really is their flexibility, if you will, flexibility in hardware. You know, you can run it in so many different places and so much, so much different type of hardware from little tiny single boards to like some really bigger stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels to me like we tr- there's a trade-off there. Because you get a bunch of users who would otherwise never get their feet wet in these technologies. But as people grow, especially into careers or whatever, and they use more sophisticated technologies, then the software can grow with them, which is actually kind of cool. It is good, but it leads to kind of confusion as to which path that should be taken. It's true. Yeah, and I wonder if those projects can have more clarity to guide users in that specific way. Because if I was new to Nextcloud... This is really the what I'm trying to solve is like how do you where how do you where yeah, do you the, go? The really the first red flag was probably years ago when the Linux Server I/O version of Nextcloud containers started getting popular. It was clear they were addressing a market need there. Um, all right, here's our last boost, boys. We're going to wrap it up, but I think this one would be probably someone in the audience 
would be capable of answering. We'll see if we have any ideas, though. B2 Thread comes in at 10,000 sats using Fountain, and they write, I was trying to save my sats to do a zip code boost, but I'm beating my head against the wall for a problem. I need some help. I'm trying to set up an HP Thing client with 16 gigs of Flash on board. Mint XFCE is just too big. I'd like to throw something else on there and then just remote desktop connect into my Fedora desktop, which has a Ryzen and plenty of free resources. But I just can't seem to get them to talk. What should I put on the Thing client to easily talk to Fedora? And what should I put on the box that could easily access it? Should I just hop distros and maybe go to Ubuntu on both? I don't know if I have a great answer. Um, but I think you could probably easily find a Linux that is smaller than Linux Mint XFCE if you're just trying to get a Linux environment on that little thin client. Maybe even a minimal install of Fedora. Something just came to mind. There are distros specifically for RDP. Extremely small. They're built for thin clients. Try one of those? Yeah. One thing that we were thinking about during our prep for the show that Jeff brought up is the one maybe advantage to doing the same distro on both ends would be that the server of the RDP server and the RDP client are probably going to pretty well match up in capabilities and features. Make sure you can actually connect B2. Make sure the the internal GNOME RDP server is working because if you're on an older version of GNOME by a couple of releases, you could just be running into some fundamental functionality problems. So do a, you know, get it running and then just launch Romania or even the Microsoft RDP client. But if you're on the local host, run Romania, something like that, and just do a local host connection in and see if that works. Verify your RDP is working. And then the idea with RDP is that it's it's the protocol and the clients are the display end. So you just got to find the appropriate client. I think Romania is a pretty good one. Um, and it doesn't actually have to be the same OS. doesn't have to be even the same versions, but closer you get, the less problems you'll have there. Uh, if anybody out there in the audience has some good experience with thin clients, especially, you know, I'm talking actual thin clients and getting OSs on there and getting connected, let us know. This is a topic of mine that is one of my OG passions. One of the first big projects I had at scale was deploying Linux terminal services in libraries. And then later on, I ended up working on Microsoft terminal services. So I really love thin clients and I love the remote desktop stuff. So if anybody out there has some geekery to share, please boost in. If you'd like to boost in, you can get a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. And then you top it off and you just boost in. They got a button right there. Or if you want to keep your dang podcast app, I know you. I know you like your app. Just get Albi. Get Albi.com. And then you can boost from the web. It's something like Podcast Index or Fountain FM. We'll have links in the notes. It's all on the Lightning Network. So you just top it off however you like and you boost in. Now, we did get 22 total boosters. We couldn't fit everybody in because of the runtime, but... We sure do appreciate and read all of them. And we stacked a grand total of 367,659 sats. Thank you, everybody who supports this production directly. And, of course, thank you to our SRE subscribers. You are our site reliability engineers. You can support the show directly with a monthly membership. You get an ad-free version of the show, and you get a post-show. And, of course, the warm fuzzies of keeping us going at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Now, this, for us, is pre-Linux Fest. For most people listening, though, Linux Fest will have happened by the time they're listening to this, and all things open will have happened. So I imagine when we get together again, perhaps we'll have some stories to share. We'll get caught up with Alex. Uh, but I want to thank Paulus for coming on the show. It was really great to chat. I've been so, so thrilled with the progress of the Year of Voice. I have it set up everywhere here at the studio, and I have multiple pipelines. So one of the cool things you can do is you can have multiple assistants 
And so I have local pipeline. I have like a slow one that I'm trying on the Raspberry Pis. And then I have the Nebucasa Cloud, Home Assistant Cloud pipeline. And not only that, but on Android, you can replace the Google Assistant with Home Assistant. And so you can trigger the Assistant and it pulls up just Home Assistant. What? And then from there even, once the UI is up, you can even switch between your different Home Assistant servers. So I can switch between the studio and the RV for different voice commands. That is so cool. They really And really thoughtful, like a thoughtful integration. It's been fun playing with the back-end tech, too. Just as much fun playing with the back-end stuff. Uh, It's just been pretty great to see. I I can only imagine where it's going to be in another year because some of those people are working their full-time now on this stuff. Uh, All right, that's it for us. Thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode. You can get the links to everything we talked about today at selfhosted.show slash 108. And, of course, you can email us at selfhosted.show slash contact. You'll find the links to contact Alex and I and Brent and Jeff and all that stuff there as well. Thanks for listening. That was Self Hosted 108.